Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and I have a favor to ask. If you appreciate what we're doing here, a number of the podcast apps that we're on let you give us some stars and even leave a review. So I'd love it if you would take a moment and make sure you're subscribed, of course, but also rate us and leave a nice review. We just got the nicest one on Apple Podcasts from Miss Flow. Uh, I think I know who this is. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a new friend I've made through podcasting named Rev Pat. Reverend Pat Flowers down in Houston, Texas. She is the best. So Miss Flo or Rev Pat <laughs> said, love me some Corey. Yeah, I just got to be Rev Pat. She goes on to say, this is my favorite podcast. And Corey Nathan always brings the fire and presents guests that leave you thinking. The ability to discuss and be willing to actually listen is a gift that Corey Nathan has. Thank you so much for giving us something worth listening to. Thank you, Miss Flo or Miss <laughs> Red Pat, for leaving such an encouraging note. Making new friends like you seriously is one of the best rewards of doing this thing. So if you listeners wouldn't mind doing the same thing and leaving a note, that would be awesome. It really helps us get noticed on the podcast apps and will help us continue to have conversations like the one we're having today with Wajahat Ali. Waj, AKA Wilbur, <laughs> is a Daily Beast columnist, co-host of the excellent podcast, Democracy-ish, public speaker, recovering attorney and playwright, and tired dad of three cute kids. His first book, Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on Becoming American, was just published in January of this year, of 2022. He's all about sharing stories that are by us for everyone. Universal narratives told through a culturally specific lens to entertain, educate, and bridge the global divides. You may have seen or heard uh, Waj on television and podcasts for his brilliant, incisive, and witty political, political commentary. His essays, interviews, and reporting have appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Guardian, and New York Review of Books. But today, Wajahat Ali is appearing on TPNR. Waj, bismillah. Uh, Corey, if I wasn't married, I could have easily gone two dates off that amazing introduction. So I will Venmo you, sir, because the kids Venmo. Back in the day, you and I would say something like, I'll send you the check in the mail. But now, if you ever say that, kids are like, what the hell are you doing? What the hell's a check? Who are you? Why are you still alive? You're old. You smell. <laughs> and make bodily noises when you yeah, inhale. Yeah. Why is there so much Metamucil and Vicks in your house? And you're like, when you get to my age, you will appreciate Vicks and Metamucil, child. <laughs> I was literally looking for a check. I need a personal check because uh, two between two accounts, I can't transfer. I'm like, oh, crap. I haven't used an actual physical check in at least, you know, a couple of years. So I'm at I'm at a loss. Now. I have to go into the bank. Can you imagine? 
You have to talk to someone. That's horrible. Talk to an actual human. It's crazy. Yeah. So a receptionist. No ple- pleasure being here. The Jewish Muslim conspiracy to take over all podcasts. Uh, we we are trying our best. That's the 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 seventh step on the Semitic agenda. So, <laughs> and we could we could cross that off. We were yeah. I think we have the entire United Nations represented here, and especially you because you're Blade. You're the Daywalker. You're Christian and Jewish. They don't they don't know. You you could hit them from both sides. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, I really appreciate you coming in. I thought it would be a good way to start in your book. Go back to where you came from. There was this passage that really uh, gripped me. You were speaking about 9-11 and not just your own experiences, but about the experiences of many, many other Muslims in America at that time. And there was one story, a passage from your book that I'd love to share and then get your reaction and we'll see where the conversation goes from there. Uh, You say Muslims were also among the heroes like Mohammed Salman Hamdani, a 23-year-old first responder who was working on his medical school applications the night before. Mohammed came here from Karachi at the age of 13, learned English and dreamed of becoming a doctor. According to his mom, Talat Hamdani, he always wanted to help people. He was a part-time emergency medical technician and had joined the NYPD's cadet program. When he saw the smoke from the buildings, he rushed in to save people as others rushed out. For the next 45 days, he wasn't remembered or praised as a hero. Instead, he was a suspect. Based on what evidence? His religion. As his parents wept, searching for answers, awake for sleepless nights, wondering if their missing son was still alive, Hamdani was being investigated. The New York Post published a piece with the headline, Missing or Hiding? Mystery of NYPD Cadet from Pakistan. His body was finally found in 34 pieces by the North Tower. 20 years after he died trying to save lives during the terror attacks, his mother is still trying to have him recognized as a first responder and named alongside other heroes at the North Pool of the 9-11 Memorial. Currently, his name is at the South Pool Memorial. I want to see it in my lifetime, his mother said. It's a very, it's so intense pain that is indescribable Eventually, Congress referred to him as a hero, but not before America saw him as a potential terrorist. Man, you, you know, it's crazy. Your book is hilarious, but <laughs> that part just, I, I, was, I was saying before we hit record, I, I found myself in tears. Uh, so, Waj, help us. Yeah, that, you know, it's the book, I, I think that's what people have uh, discovered is like the book is funny, but then it gut punches you as well. And I think <clears throat> that's um, a microcosm, that story just, just shared as like a microcosm of America. It's the book is about loving a country that doesn't always love you back and defending a country that doesn't always have your back. And the story of Muhammad Hamdani is a perfect illustration of it. I felt like it was important to put that story in there. Uh, it's a hero, uh, but a hero who had the wrong skin color and wrong ethnicity and wrong religion. You know, this immigrant dream, he came to America with all these hopes and wanted to help people and become a doctor. And hell, he joined the cadet, joined law enforcement, and he was a first responder. And he sees those two towers coming down. He rushes in to help people. And instead of saying, oh, guys, everyone look for Muhammad Hamdani. This was a hero. He tried to find people. Let's pray for him. Let's pray that we can find him. Uh, Instead, New York Post and others said, aha, Hamdani. Without any evidence, he must have been an extremist. So, so imagine that. Imagine the pain uh, of being Tala Tamdani, his mother. Uh, you don't know, by the way, for those for that month and a half, you hold out hope. Maybe he's still alive, right? You're a parent. You don't know. 
but you you dread the worst. And and while you and so many others in that similar situation, the 9-11 survivors and their families have this, this gut punch, all right, of, of not knowing, the country is smearing your son, who's a hero. And then and then 20 years later, this one wish of this, this mother, and I've talked to her before, is just to see him recognized as a hero, but he's still not on that wall. And, and it's that it's that recognition, our our place in the story, our role in the American story, you know, it might not mean much, but it means everything. And and what's your role? How are you represented? And for many of us, we're either invisible, we're the sidekick, we're the punchline, or we're the villain. But some of us, even when we're heroes, even as a hero, we're villainized. And so I, I think that story spoke a lot about how this thing called Islam and Muslims was easily demonized after 9-11. And we became, those who, those of us who are American Muslim, born and raised in this country, or citizens, like Muhammad uh, Hamdani, we became both us and them. And how do you navigate that? It's interesting. You bring up a really good point about taking individual data points, whether it's the shade of our skin uh, color or our religion, and then removing the human from those data points uh, and then replacing that human being or that story, as you say, with a whole other story. I see your skin color. I hear your religion and I hear the sound of your name. I already know everything I need to know about you. Yeah, that's it. You're done. It's a, it's a, it's a collective proclivity that we have. Uh, and I, but how do we shake that? How do we, I, I find it in myself too. You know, like somebody votes a certain way, wears a certain color hat. I already know everything I need to know about them. And, and I fill in all the blanks. How do we recognize that in ourselves? And how do we, how do we, what's, what's the pres- prescription? Yeah. It's, so it, it, it's human nature, unfortunately, uh, that, that we oftentimes see something and all of us are guilty of it. And we reduce that person and set, essentialize them oftentimes by singular trait oftentimes the worst trait. And, and what social media has done in particular has it flattened us completely. So I do think a, a lot of the quote unquote, it's more than polarization. We're dealing, especially in America, I think with a radicalized movement, unfortunately, a politicized movement. What, what people forget is those people who are part of this movement that is an ongoing threat to our democracy. They're people at the end of the day, right? It's very easy to sometimes think that's what's so scary about it. You sometimes sit there and go, oh, they're devils. They're not devils. They don't have horns on their head. They don't breathe fire. They're people. And yet people have become radicalized through disinformation to echo certain conspiracies and talking points and be part of a violent movement that, you know, assaulted our democracy on January 6th. But behind it all, they're people. And, and that's that's where the, you have to take the extra step and step back and see that, huh, that's almost more frightening, right? It's like the banality of evil, right? What we talked about in like, when you look at Nazi Germany, right? It's very easy to dismiss, dismiss all the Nazis. Oh, they were just evil. But you, you sit there and go, actually, there were people who through time, that's what's even more frightening, right, Corey? There yeah. were people through time and conditioning normalized hate. And I remember I was, uh, I visited Auschwitz a couple of years ago. I went with this multiracial coalition and I, I was doing the tour through Auschwitz. And we were talking about, I think it was 2016, Trump had gotten elected, right? So the guard or rather the tour guide, was just telling me his story. He goes, you know, my grandfather survived this place. And I feel like just to keep on the legacy, I come here and volunteer as a tour guide. So we're just talking about stories. And, you know, he was 
talk talking about U.S. politics. He's like, you know, the you know Donald Trump, and he's saying these things about people. Mexicans are rapists and criminals. You know, and I said, yeah, man, we're in an interesting situation where you know I'm a Muslim guy, I'm a brown guy. We've had racism, but like it's really strange in the 21st century to have this guy who's president just straight up say like Islam hates us, criminals, caravan invaders. And he was listening intently, the guide. And he said, I never forget this. He goes, that's how it starts with language. They dehumanize you with language. That's how it began here, right? And I feel like this is one of those situations where people are seen as rodents, vermins, a swarm, caravan, invaders. It's very easy to strip them of their humanity, of their complexity, of their nuance. And they easily become a problem and when people become a problem, as we've seen historically, Corey, some individuals come up with solutions and some of those are final solutions. And so I think for people like us who, I think right now it's a balancing act, to be honest, we're fighting a movement, this is my opinion, a radicalized weaponized movement that is a threat to democracy. As we fight this movement, it is imperative for us and myself in particular to remember that we're also dealing with people. And the analogy that I give is the following. And this is how I try to reconcile it, if it's possible. I have said before, I do not think in our lifetime, Corey, we're going to win over about 30% of Americans. I hope I'm wrong. If I eat crow, please put spice in the crow, make it halal and kosher so I can eat it. I want to be, <laughs> be wrong. I want to be wrong. I don't think I am. In my life, in our lifetime. That being said, the caravan has to move forward. The caravan of the majority has to move forward. Now, this is how I reconcile with what I just said to you, the precursor. Even though I believe the 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 caravan of the majority has to move forward. I believe the prophetic example is the door to the caravan is open and my hand will always be out outstretched. You can come join us anytime. Does that make sense? It makes sense. It, 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 it's like, it's, it's, it's a saying that in the Middle East, you probably heard it, the dogs bark, but the caravan moves forward. I feel like that's where we're at right now to save our democracy. The majority has to coalesce and move forward, but the Muslim in me who has to see the humanity in people and who has to always have faith in redemption and forgiveness and, and have faith that people can change. The door has to be open and my hand has to always be outstretched. So I'm of two very divergent minds on what you just said. On the one hand, I'm very, I'm very depressed, you know, because if we look back at just even going back to 2015 or before that, uh, some of my friends and some uh, public figures have had so many off ramps. I mean, even in, was it August of 2015 when Trump was talking about, I, I like my heroes who, uh, who weren't captured, mm. you know, I mean, that was, that was just one of many. And, and then during his presidency, obviously, whether it was Helsinki or, or so many, man, so you, many, you know, there at, at January 6th, I mean, I could go down a long, long list to this very day, you know, <laughs> Well, look, 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 Corey, as you were saying, pardon me, like Biden gave him an off ramp, regardless of what you think of his speech. He could have said all of you all are fascists. He goes, MAGA, MAGA Republicans, Republicans. there. And not only that, he went out of his way. There are many good Republicans. There is a Larry about, like, Hogan, you know, he mentioned. Yeah, yeah Hogan. There's those folks who this is not their daddy's party. They realize. And, and that was the biggest olive branch and off ramp. And even then they're like, nope, he called yeah. us all semi fascists. Yeah. Yeah. There's that defensiveness. And, and you know, he was making since he started using that term, Mac Republicans, I say, you know what? Call it out. Name it. If you don't name it and you pretend, oh, they're all fine people on both sides. Right. 
then we're just part of, of a problem. But there's a part of me, and listen, the name of my program, Talk of Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, I'm trying to be inclusive here, yeah. and I'm trying to do it in a better way. But at the end of the day, you got to name it. The, the, the way that um, you were talking about World War II and leading up to concentration camps, you, there has to be the Bonhoeffer. But the problem yeah. is you have, I'm not saying, uh, I'm not saying Kinzinger and Cheney are today's Bonhoeffer, you know, Bonhoeffer needed help within the institutional German church, and, and he, he was a lone voice, and therefore he was a martyr. Uh, again, not to draw too close of a comparison to someone like No, Shane. but you can, right? You can, you can draw those comparisons because, look, everyone says at the end of the day, don't call anyone else a Nazi. Nazis are Nazis. But if you look at scholars of that era, right, scholars of fascism, scholars of Nazism, there's a reason why these sober scholars, Corey, in the past five years have been sounding the alarms. There's patterns. Yeah. You know, like we see the same patterns towards fascism, authoritarianism, and you can learn from the past, right? And what we're witnessing, like you said, is, is you know, a Liz Cheney or a Kinzinger or, or even a Rusty Bowers lifelong yeah. Republican, GOB, Arizona candidate, you know, he, he gave a testimony on January 6th, you know, for those who are listening, just Google Rusty Bowers, he got death threats from the Republican Party. And he was like a lifelong conservative, even after he got the death threats, he goes, I'll still vote for Trump. And then finally, last month, he goes, enough's enough, I have to get off this train. Yeah, because, you know, the only thing that he said was, uh, I can't participate in this coup. I'm sorry. I, I, I Biden won. And just for that, they, they, they did death threats against his daughter who was battling cancer at the time. Right. And so you sit there and you go, we're dealing with a movement and we've seen what happens when you don't resist a movement. You, you see it, you see it in Europe. Jews know, <laughs> talk to Jews. Right. And, and so it's one of the situations where how do I be like the prophetic example, right? When is the time when the prophet comes out and says, people, I'm here, I love you all, I'm trying to warn you. Then there comes a sign that he says, people, I got to throw down my stick, right? And so I think it's like, you know, and since I know you're a believer, and I think people will appreciate this analogy on your show, both politics and religion, with what's happening in America, especially with the pandemic, it just reminds me of the story of Moses, uh, you know, like, I don't know if I said this with you last time when you were on our show, right? Like I always, you know, you read the story of Moses and you go, okay, even if you don't believe it, everyone knows the story. Thank you, Charlton Heston, Cecil B. DeMille and Ten Commandments, right? I would like to think if Charlton Heston comes and says, I warn of several plagues, there will be frogs from the sky, blood in the water, locusts. And as soon as I see the frogs in the sky, I'm like, Moses, I'm with you, buddy. I, 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 that's it. I'm done. Frogs from the sky. I'm done. And for the story, for those of you who don't know, blood in the water. People still don't believe him. Frogs in the sky. People don't believe him. Locusts. People don't believe him. Firstborn dies. People still don't believe him. The friggin' sea parts. People still don't believe him. Moses says, hey, guys, I'm going to go up, talk to God. I'll be back in 40 days. Just chill. Try your best not to worship a calf. Even then, people are like, eh, it's been 20 days. Moses is a liar. We're going to start worshiping this calf, right? And, and you see the pandemic, and you're like, I understand, God. I understand how you made us to be like these, this just fickle, reckless, selfish species that sometimes doesn't see the sign. And I think about it right now with what you're saying, and I'm like, what's the prophetic model to deal with people who otherwise are radicalized and, and, and normalizing fascism? Where is the, the barrier where I stop? putting my hand out and normalizing this and I, and I throw my stick down. It's, it's yeah. a tough, it's a tough, I don't know. Well, there, there are definitely examples of that, but I think part, the first requirement, the first imperative is to recognize ourselves in those stories. 
So are we the Israelites the worshiping at the golden calf? Mm. You know, and and once we can reckon with that, <laughs> then we can start to figure out the prescription. Are we the uh, you know sometimes we we want to uh, identify as Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but perhaps we're what whatever it was uh, Nebuchadnezzar's people were they Babylonians? Babylonians bowing down at the golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Mm. You know maybe we just have to reckon with the fact that we're the ones that are bowing down at this idol. Uh, before we can start to figure out how to move forward from here and get ourselves out of that idol worship or whatever version of that we're we're a part of right now. And again, like I, I look at some of my friends from church, for example, who it, it's really easy for me to see what they're doing because I'm on the outside looking in. But the harder part is for me to recognize where I am one of the disciples mm. who, for example, like uh, goes to Jesus and says, Hey, can I say that your right hand? Uh, you know, I want to have that place of glory, you know, or to try to identify and glorify myself and think of myself as the prophet, as opposed to reckoning with my own uh, culpability in, in furthering uh, not just contentiousness, but like this warlike attitude. And speaking about stories and what are places in the story, I think that's very uh, astute and profound. Oftentimes, if you, in human beings, we never ever see ourselves as villains of the story. Mm. Even in our own internal narrative, if you think about it, and if we're honest with ourselves, we're either the hero or the victim, always. Oh, wait, 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 hold on. Wait till your kids are in their late teen and early 20s. Then you, you'll then look back on parenting now. You, Oh my God, I really want no, to No, no, but inter- I'm talking about internally, right? Yeah, internally, yeah. oh, I'm the hero of this story or the victim. We rarely say I'm the bad guy. We rationalize mm. all our actions. We blame others. We engage in victimhood. Even if we did something bad, someone made us do it. But no one wakes up and says, I'm the bad guy. Even historically, villains, right? And I think this is a safe space where you and I can agree that Nazis were bad. (laughs) We don't have to both sides Nazis. American politics is weird, man, in 2022, right? Got both sides, everything. Yeah, even Nazis, right? If you go back and read their literature, if you listen to the speeches, they thought they were what? The, The heroes or the victims? We have to... We have to save and redeem Aryan society that has been under assault. And this is the Third Reich. And we have to purify our nation that has been tainted by uh, criminals and, and, and outsiders. And we are glorifying our species. We are the hero. Join our movement. Even if you listen to the jihadists, the violent Muslim extremists, ISIS, they think they're heroes. We have to purify our lands that have been invaded by the crusaders. And there's injustice. And we're going there to save the people. What do you mean we're the bad guys? We're the good guys. If you listen Listen to the KKK and the white nationalists. Same thing. Our people are under assault and we have to sound the alarm. We're the Paul Revere and we have to use violence. And so it's one of those situations where I think it's so difficult for us to really have that audit, Corey, and say, maybe we might be (laughs) the bad guys here. And it's one of those situations through U.S. history why it's so difficult and why sometimes you have to throw the stick down like Musa is. You know, it's very easy to sit there and think, you know, in the 1950s, you know how they used to spit on black people, lynch them. Uh, those people were all evil. No, ladies and gentlemen, there were just white folks in America who went to church, loved their kids, were part of the labor unions, right? Made a good pie, uh, came home, watched Leave it to Beaver. They didn't have horns on their head. And so it's easy to demonize, but it's, it's harder to see that we are capable of both good and evil and, yeah. and, and to recognize that aspect of ourselves. And, and are we in this moment furthering hate 
or are we the ones that are pushing back? What's our role? You can't stay neutral in my in this situation, in my opinion. Is that something unique, like a unique ability that you've developed, say, for example, as a playwright, the necessity to fully empathize with a character that isn't you in order to create that character, in order to breathe life into that character with the words on the page, is that something that's unique to someone like you and your creative abilities? Or is, is it a, a, a virtue that we can all develop? It's a virtue that we can all develop. And speaking of stories, what they have shown is that, especially when it comes to fiction, that people who read, especially when it comes to fiction or fictional novels, it increases our capacity for curiosity and creativity, but expands also our ability to empathize. And that is, you know, everything ties together what we're talking about, the, the power of stories, right? You know, human beings are the unique storytelling animal in existence. There's a fantastic quote from a 19th century Jewish American poet who was the daughter of immigrants. Uh, her name was Muriel Rukeyser, who said, uh, who wrote, the universe is made of stories, not of atoms. The universe is made of stories, not of atoms. Stories or how we understand each other. Stories are how we uh, uh, appreciate and pass down our religion, our values, our ethics. You know, even when we teach our kids morals, it, it's through stories, right? The boy who cried wolf. It's like it's like that. It's like you hide the nugget in in the Trojan horse of a story, and the story is getting lost. And and who frames a story? Who who's the co-protagonist? Who gets the speaking parts, right? And I think as a writer in particular, it has helped. And and, and writing fiction in particular is because. It's hard for me, especially when I wrote the play, there's six different characters, right? I'm not all the characters, believe it or not. I'm not suffering from multiple personality disorder. But in order to give the characters justice, I have to, in a strange way, and I know this sounds weird, you have to be a vessel for the character's voice. And so I'm writing dialogue that I would totally don't agree with, but I know the character agrees with. And so I have to be authentic to that voice, even though I don't agree with it. And so what it does, I think, you know, my, my, my experience in theater and improv, talking to different people, traveling the world, writing fiction, it forces me to expand myself. Like it, once you become aware of someone, their story, you don't have to agree with it, Corey, but you can't ignore it. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah. I have to wrestle with it. Right. Yeah. You, you have to, you have to wrestle with it. You have to make space for it. Right. Yeah, and studying English as as a student in, in junior high school, high school, and then going on to study acting, um, that was the gift that that was to even even characters that are well beyond my own ethical moorings, uh, Iago in in, in mm. Shakespeare, someone like that. It stretches you to try to understand what's driving them, how they're justifying their actions. Well, can I can I say one thing? Because sure. you're a theater guy, right? And you might appreciate that. Just before we before we move on. You know, I was interviewing uh, the actor this couple of months ago, just at South by Southwest, uh, Nicola Coster-Waldau, uh, for those of you who watch Game of Thrones, Jamie Lannister, oh, right? Okay. Yeah. And so I, I, you know, I was interviewing uh, uh, Jamie Lannister and I said, listen, <laughs> man, you know, your character goes through so many arcs and he starts off like as a bad guy and he sleeps with his sister and he tries to like paralyze the kid and spoiler alert. And, 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 and then he, be, he gains his virtue and he becomes humble and, and he was listening to me and he kind of pushed back and he says, well, I don't know if he was a bad guy. I'm like, what do you mean? Like incest and death and killing? He goes, you know, he's not perfect. But when you play the a role like that, a character like that, you have to really kind of 
get into his skin and empathize and rationalize why he would do what he would do. And he goes like, the reason why I think I was able to get more nuanced with him and show these, these different grays is because I didn't see him just as a villain. I just saw him as a person mm. with flaws. And, and I do think that for people like us who indulge in narrative and stories and who realize it's so fundamental to humanity, it allows us, like you said, a virtue that everyone can develop. I don't think it's like one of those innate things. It, it's it's why I want to make my pitch for the humanities, even though they're getting cut and killed in campuses everywhere. People are like, what's the point? Just do STEM. I'm like, uh, humanities, we are human beings, knowledge, learning, stories, empathy. But, you know, what's the dollar value on that? I'm like, oh, we're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the, the, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. At one point in the book, you say, if you aren't writing your story, your story will always be written for you. So one, when did you discover your superpower for being a great storyteller? And oh. two, what's your story? Well, I don't know if I'm a great storyteller. All I know is once in a while, I can spin a good yarn. But these are moments where, you know, mentorship is important. And for those of you who are listening, you oftentimes... I, I get asked the following, man, I want to, there's so many challenges in the world and I want to do something, but who am I, Waj? I'm nobody. I, you know, I'm not like you. I have a podcast. I see you on CNN. You gave a TED talk. Uh, you know, I'm just a nobody. And I always say, I love nobodies. Some <laughs> of my favorite people are nobodies. In fact, I'm a nobody, right? It's, in, it's important because sometimes all you need, Corey, and you know this, is just one person, on a mentor, an elder, a friend who says, you know what, Corey? you got something. You should start a podcast. You're like me. <laughs> Who am I? I'm just a Jewish Christian with a ponytail. And they're like, yeah, you know, <laughs> I think, I, th I think there'll be an audience for that. And so with me, I was this shy, overweight, left-handed, sick kid who used to sweat profusely <laughs> when talking to girls and could never muster a word. Right. Like just always tried to fit in one of the, one of the cutest girls to look in my direction. She never did. When a Chet and Travis to invite me to eat this mysterious dish called meatloaf, they never did. <laughs> right. And Mrs. Peterson, this creative teacher, my fifth grade homeroom teacher who made us do 20 creative assignments. It was like the most work I've ever done. Like I did, I did more work in fifth grade than I did in ninth grade. Right. So one of her, one of the assignments was, was to write a story. And she said, write a one-page fictional story. I wrote a 10-page short, short story. And it was Wajahat Ali's rendition of Robin Hood. And you and I are both old heads. And we remember 1991 when Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves came out starring Kevin Costner with an American accent, which was weird. And I remember <laughs> that Morgan Freeman, the voice of God, was his like right-hand man. And when yeah. we saw the movie, we realized that Morgan Freeman's character was called Azim and he was Muslim. Now, the power of representation. We were so starving for representation that when we found out that he was Muslim, we're like, holy crap, he's a Muslim in this movie and he's a badass. And then he he prayed and he, we're like, what the F is he doing? And we're like, I think he's praying. Yeah, I said, no Muslim has ever prayed like this before, but we're like, whatever, man, we're desperate. We'll take it. Because like literally all we had was Apu at that time. And Apu, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> it's a 2D cartoon character voiced by a white man who's a Hindu. But for the rest of us, we're like, he's brown. He's brown. We'll take it. I was talking yeah. to a Latina journalist. She was like, listen, when West Side Story first came out, we were so desperate that the character is called Maria. We didn't care that she was played by a white woman. We took it, right? So I, I was like, 
so enamored by this and I had a crush on the actress Mary Elizabeth Antonio, who played Maid Marian and Brian Adams had this song that came out at that time that all the girls used to like and yeah. they used to dance to in sixth grade right? so I wrote a 10 page rendition Wajahat Ali's rendition of Robin Hood and Mrs. Peterson was grading the the the, the papers in homeroom and she gave me an A++++ she invited me up and she said watch this is fantastic you're gonna have to recite the story right now in front of the class get up in front of the class right now and recite the story I'm like Mrs. Peterson I'm shy I'm fat please don't make me she goes quiet fatty get up and recite the story <laughs> and so that's when i was forced hands trembling to recite the story in the same homeroom that used to make fun of me because i was a fat kid growing up in the 80s and 90s where every day was world war three i had them they were wrapped with attention and they laughed at all the right parts and they gave me an applause and i remember afterwards miss peterson said all right you have to go up in front of the sixth graders and seventh graders the, the talent show's coming up in two two weeks say it in front of them i'm like uh, miss peterson please don't make me do it i'm shy i'm fat she goes quiet fatty get up and do it and then i got up in front of the upperclassmen same response and i took that story home and my father said beta you have a talent you should think about becoming a writer and i remember my mom rushed from the kitchen and she said but first become a doctor <laughs> and and that's when i first realized huh I might have something. I yeah. might have something. That was that critical sliding door moment in life. So there, there's a similar moment uh, a few years later, maybe 10 years later, after 9-11. Uh, and I think the professor's name was Ishmael Reed. Yes. Could tell, tell us a little bit about that. 9-11 happens. I'm 20 years old. I'm about to graduate from uh, UC Berkeley. And as the kids say, F my life, I joined the Muslim Student Association instead of the Indian Student Association. And they uh, elected me to their board. Hella sucks because <laughs> the dark humor goes that if Muslims knew 9-11 was going to happen, I would have never joined the Muslim Student Association. I would have joined the Indian Student Association. I would have learned how to bhangra and spell well and gone on hot dates. But FML, joined the Muslims. And, you know, you were at that age, Corey, you the, the country lost its damn mind after 9-11. People forget. People really forget. Um, you know, they, they took tractors over the CDs of the Dixie Chicks. They did bonfires because the lead singer, Natalie Maines, all she said was, I'm embarrassed that George W. Bush is from Texas. That's all she said. This country lost its mind. Jingoistic fever, revenge, violence, you know, um, canceling of uh, French fries. We call them freedom fries. I'm not making this up. Uh, and in this climate of... Remember that, right? In this yeah. climate of fear and paranoia and hate and revenge and anger, Muslims became the enemy. Islam became the enemy. And we became a target. And I remember on that day, 9-11, I was at UC Berkeley across the country as the two towers were brought down by 19 foreign hijackers. And I got my first email, hate mail, because my email was attached as like the media liaison to the UC Berkeley Muslim Student Association website. Go back to where you came from, you terrorists. Bigots aren't nuanced. Bigots are not nuanced. The first hate crime after 9-11 was against a sick Indian gas station owner, this poor man, Balbir Singh. And the white supremacists who killed them in Arizona wanted revenge against 9-11. Bigots are not nuanced. All right. They all, they, they all see us as the enemies, ladies and gentlemen. And so my teacher, Ishmael Reed, I was in a short story writing class. He's an African-American giant poet, MacArthur genius winner. He invites me to class three weeks after 9-11. And I think he's going to chew me out because, dude, I was like accidental activist, community activist, community leader, trying to figure out my major. Right. It was wild. And I'm like, shit, man, he's going to like mock me for not coming to class for three weeks. I'm so embarrassed. Instead, he says. As a black man. I know what's going to happen to your people. 
I fear you're going to get hazed for the next 10 years. As a black man, we've been going through this for 400 years. The way we fought back is through culture and storytelling. I, you know, you're in your short story class, you're talented. I actually think you should try playwriting. I think dialogue and characters are a strength. Don't waste your time in this short story writing class. In fact, I'm going to kick you out of this class. Don't come to school anymore. Um, write me 20 pages of a play. And you, you ever read these traditional kitchen dramas like Death of a Salesman, Fences, sure. Raisin in the Sun? I'm like, yeah. Long Day's he Journey, goes, yeah. Yeah, Long Day's Journey and Night. He goes, write me something like that. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, you got two months, write me 20 pages or you'll fail. Okay, bye. And that became the genesis of the play The Domestic Crusader is a day in the life of a Muslim Pakistani American family after 9-11. Uh, a teacher, who a black man who has gone through it, saw something and decided to invest in this, this brown Muslim kid and realized the power of storytelling. And he said the story could be a corrective and a solve to the hate that's happening right now. And it could maybe help people bridge the divides. And, and lo and behold, he was right. It took some time. But lo and behold, that that play jump started my career. Do you ever take a moment and just appreciate like, do you ever feel like taking a month? Like when you see Toni Morrison say this play is brilliant. Is that are you ever able to just like, OK, I'm good. If I died right now, I am good. <laughs> yeah, Toni Mor. We got Toni Morrison to come to the last showing of the Domestic Crusaders in New York. Ishmael knew her. And before the play, I'm eating cake next door at a French bakery with Toni Morrison and Ishmael Reed, where she is trying to tell dick jokes that she heard on the Wanda Sykes special <laughs> and she keeps cracking herself up. And I'm like, what's happening? And then afterwards she goes and sees the play. I sit behind her and like a man, I, I, you should be proud of me. Like a hustler, like a child of immigrants, I jump on stage. And before she leaves, I say, Tony Morrison, Look at the chutzpah on me on this one. <laughs> what did you think of the play? And she stops, all eyes on her. Very methodically and deliberately, she goes, this play is brilliant, shapely, funny, clever. And then she leaves. And then I'm like, it's done. Anyone who shits on me, I'm like, did Toni Morrison ever call your play brilliant? No, that's what I thought. Bye. <laughs> uh, and so, look, I pinch myself all the time because I realize... Corey, how lucky I am in life every day to be talking here with you, to be talking about a play, to be talking about a play that Toni Morrison saw, to be able to share my views and thoughts and opinions. Like We're incredibly lucky. And to quote Spider-Man, who quotes Voltaire, with great power comes great responsibility, right? And also, I think even if I didn't have this platform, your, your podcast is about talking religion and politics. I think this is a place where we can talk about religion and God, which is also something that I think you and I agree with that. America is not sophisticated when it comes to talking about religion and faith, right? If you do believe in God, you, you, you believe in a merciful, loving God, and you believe that your life has meaning and purpose. And then after this life ends, there will be, in, in a way, a reunion with God, hopefully a loving reunion, and there will be an accounting for your time, right? And, and if you read the Bible, and I read the Bible, I went to all boys Jesuit Catholic high school, there's a reason why in the Bible it says it's easier for a poor man to get to heaven than a rich man. And the reason is, is because even though life on this earth is easier for the rich man, there will be an ask that what did you do with your wealth? What did you do with your privilege? What did you do with your time? And that ask and that burden is greater than, the, than those who are poor, right? So I think about that often, like 
do I have enough time? Have I done enough? Am I doing enough? And my wife is like, dude, you're too hard on yourself. Just calm down. But I feel like, you know, I've been given so much compared to so many. And I've been lucky to travel the world. People really suffer, man. People really suffer in life. And so I feel like I have to use this one small superhero talent. I hope to push things forward and, and, and always keep pushing myself to do more. There was a moment in time in your family story where you were, you were having to handle your family's business. Uh, and at one point in the book, I think this was also uh, the Atlantic printed a, an excerpt of yes, this passage um, that you realized, man, we're losing everything. And in some way, you found that freeing in a way. Uh, do, do you think that moment sort of informs your gratitude that that seems pervasive now in, you, in your life? Absolutely, man. For those who read the book, and, and just really quickly, what happened also six months after 9-11 in April 2022 is as I was graduating, my parents got arrested, both of them at the same time, in something called Operation Cyberstorm in the Bay Area, which at that time was the largest anti-piracy crackdown initiated by FBI. The thing is, my parents had nothing to do with the piracy. The people in their office complex were actually pirating Microsoft software. Oddly enough, the net was cast really wide and my parents had a completely separate case with Microsoft over licensing. And so here are my parents, achieve the American dream, upper middle class, South Asians in their pajamas. My dad, you know, the night before he got arrested, was in his Costco pajama suit making uh, medicines for my grandmother who used to live with me. My mom had cooked food and was in the bed, probably reading an Us magazine. I was at college and at 6 a.m., armed FBI agents freaking barged through the door, dragged my parents out of bed. My parents had no idea what was happening. My grandmother was screaming. They get in the paddy wagon. My father reads his 31 count indictment, passes out. It's like, what the hell's happening? I get a call from my aunt. I'm the only child. Later that night, I'm at Berkeley and she says, yeah, your parents got arrested. I think you should come home and take care of your two grandmothers and figure out what's happening. And so overnight, Corey, uh, the American dream becomes the American nightmare. Overnight, we lose everything. I lost the money, the house, the credit, health, the good reputation, the good name, the community turned on us. We lost everything. And overnight, I experienced the America of so many who live on the wrong side of privilege, right? And it was interesting. And I think this is why I have an expansive view of this country called America, or these countries, I should say, called America, is because I have a very rare view of this country because I had one foot in privilege and one foot in poverty, right? I have one foot achieving the American dream and I had one foot in the American nightmare. I had one foot as the good minority and has one foot in the bad minority. And my parents, it took a year for my parents to get out, a year, because they lost everything and, and no one... Bad news travels fast, Corey. Bad news travels fast. And when a house is burning, everyone leaves. And so it took me a year to finally get them out. And then they appealed the case. And for 10 years, this sword hung over our neck, right? And, and what happened, I remember I mentioned this in the book, there came a point about, I think, like maybe four or five months after my parents got arrested, I think it was a September, and we had lost everything at this time. And I was so surgical with the money because I was trying to take care of my parents, pay the attorneys, take care of my grandmothers, find way to like pave rent and like keep the business going. And all this shit was happening at once. Like the, the analogy I give was imagine Spider-Man facing the Sinister Six every day. And every day he defeats the Sinister Six and he's beaten up and he wakes up and like they, they get resurrected. He's like, oh shit, man. It was like that. 
yeah. for a year. And and the story that you mentioned is I had to go to the bank and I thought I would have $71 in the account after I, I took out 20 bucks. I take out the 20 bucks, I look at the receipt. It was 00.03. Oh so I made like a mistake. And so I, I sat there, you know what I did? Instead of crying, I just started laughing. Because I, I just thought, I'm like, I have three cents. This is hilarious. And so what I did instead is I took, I looked at the 20 bucks. I had to make payroll. I had to do all this shit, man. Instead, I went to the local subway and I had a foot long tuna sandwich with the works. <laughs> I got the two chocolate chip cookies. I went next door to Starbucks. I got the venti caramel frap with extra caramel and whipped cream. <laughs> Enjoyed the shit out of it. Now I have 10 bucks left. I went home and I told my grandmothers, I have 10 bucks and three cents left. <laughs> I literally have done everything I could do. There is nothing else I can do. I have no idea what's going to happen. I'm sorry. I tried my best. My grandmother, very religious, spiritual woman. She paused for a second. She said, inshallah, Allah will take care of us. Something will happen. I go and I sleep that night. And, and what I describe in the book is I had the best sleep I have ever had in my life. It, it was like I imagined as a baby in the womb, just nurtured. And I woke up so restored. And, and to this day, I've done a prayer to God that I could have, I could, I could just have that sleep once again. I've never had that sleep again. And I tried to figure out like, why did I have that sleep? And I think it's when you completely exhaust yourself, when you realize there's nothing left and you tried your best. This is where I think faith sometimes helps is you just let it go to God and the universe. And in losing everything, there was kind of a comfort that, that, you know, I did everything I could. I tied my camel and now I just trust in God. And, and the fact that I'm sitting here now 20 years later, almost to the day, or actually almost to the day, wow, sitting here talking to you, it, it gives me gratitude because the story didn't end. The pages kept turning and here I am still alive. So I'm always humbled and I'm always grateful and I always pinch myself. And, and sorry for letting me monologue. You asked me these questions. I'm giving these long stories, but hopefully your reader, your listeners aren't bored. No, it's great. It's it, it, it made, I relate to a chapter in our family's life when, um, uh, when we first got to California, Lisa and I had nothing. We just had each other. Uh, actually we, we did have something. We had a truck. <laughs> yeah. You had, I, something. I, I, you had something. You were spoiled. I sold everything I had back east, and uh, with 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 the money, I bought a pickup truck so that Lisa could pack all of her shoes in the back of the pickup truck, and we could move out to California. We literally got here; we didn't have a place to stay, uh, and I think we were down to about twenty five bucks. Mm. Uh, so we both were looking for jobs. We couldn't get jobs right away. I finally found a job as a messenger, uh, and I needed my truck, and I, I actually enjoyed it. I learned the streets of LA that way, and I, I enjoyed being in in a you know on the roads of Los Angeles. Um, but about two and a half months after we moved here, somebody stole my truck. <laughs> wow. So now you don't so, even have a truck. So now we don't even have a truck. I can't, I can't work my job, the, the job that I had. So we, we, we were one bad break away from, you know, being homeless. Uh, but, you know, we, we built a nice life for ourselves in the early 2000s. I started making a lot of money. But then 2007, 2008, 2009 happened. And, you know, talk about placing ourselves not as the hero of the story, but um, sort of victims or, mm. or what have you, you know, between 2008 and 2015, it was one day after another of just straining and struggling to hold on to what we, cause we had three kids by that time. 
Uh, and it was, it was a real struggle every single yeah. day, 2015. Uh, and there were a lot of decisions along the way. Um, you know, one was, do we meet payroll? Cause I had employees or do we pay our mortgage? So we decided to continue paying um, our pay, our, 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 the folks on our team, mm. um, which ultimately led to us losing our house. Mm. So, well, this is like was, my story. You're like my Jewish <laughs> brother from another mother. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't right away. I, I have to be honest. I, I, there was a moment after we finally moved out of the house of mourning. We, it was like losing a member of the family. It's where our kids were born. It's where our kids were growing up. So we had to mourn, but not too long after that, I had this moment. I don't know if you've ever heard the story. Uh, Lazarus laughed. Uh, mm. Someone, someone threatened Lazarus. Like, I'm going to kill you. It was after Lazarus, Jesus raised him from the dead and yeah. Lazarus like, you're going to kill me. <laughs> you know, he literally laughed. Um, so we lost everything, you know, we lost, I, I lost my Harley. I had a Harley. It was such a beautiful oh. bike. You know, oh. I didn't lose. I, I, it was part of the thing where I was selling everything to. Yeah. To like I had to do it too. You had to sell everything for pennies. Yeah. yeah. But about a month after we moved out of that house, I'm like, we just lost everything. I got nothing to lose. This is awesome. It's freeing. You know? Right. And it's strange. It's very liberating. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, that, that, you know, you mentioned that I appreciate you sharing it because I had, we were in the same thing. We were, I had literally, and I use the word literally, because for those of you who read the book, you'll find out that the story goes that for, you know, we, my parents appealed this case for 10 years. So at first we lost everything. Then my parents came back and then we rebuilt our lives. And mm. I was always stuck trying to help them. Right. Cause one foot was in, what foot was out. What happens if they lose the appeal? I have to come back. So there's like a sword hanging overhead, but they really rebuilt their lives to their credit. And then this appeal lasted like nine years. And then right before I'm about to turn 30, all of a sudden they lose their, the appeal. And then right then my father gets arrested. And then, and then the judge gives my mom six months to turn herself in. So we lose everything again, lost everything again. And so I'm sitting there using my money to help my family. We sell everything on for pennies, just like you. And I call the Tri-City Homeless Shelter in Fremont because we were homeless. And for some reason, I had, I had volunteered there, man. Like I had volunteered there during high school when I went to All Boys Jesuit Catholic High School. So the place where I volunteered going to a private high school is the place that I'm calling 15 years later to, to get, uh, you know, to see if I have shelter for me. And like an idiot, I just assumed like they would have it. And they're like, there's a wait list. I'm like, of course there's a wait list. So, so literally at the last second, you know, my uncle says I have a room. And so here I'm a grown ass man at the age of 30 who everyone thinks is crushing it because I'm a playwright. My plays in New York. I'm writing articles. Everyone thinks I'm the one that made it. I'm sharing a room with my mom completely broke. And then six months later, I drive my mother to prison. And then when I marry my wife, I was like you when you guys are married. I, I, I can count on less than 10 fingers what I had. I, I'll do it in your podcast. Let's see if I could pull it off. 97 Toyota Camry without a, a driver's side door handle. I had a Samsonite bag. I had a PS3 at that time. I had just a couple of books that were left, four things, right? I had a suitcase with some clothes, that's five. And I had a black jacket that I used to wear, my one black jacket that I wore that people thought I was like fancy. So six things, that's it. When I married my wife, I had those six things and I had 600 bucks in, in the account. And I think you and I got very lucky because when I when my wife is super better looking than me, more wealthy, more everything. She's like, I'm married way up. I told my wife, I'm like, you're marrying a scrub, but I have faith in me. I'm going to make it rain. Like there's potential. And my wife said, I'm marrying you for the man that you are now, not based on your potential. I'm like, 
I have chosen wisely. <laughs> I was going to ask you, actually, so there's, I, I saw that you, you joke about being a recovering attorney, but there was a, a chapter in your career where you were a practicing yeah. Yeah, attorney, yeah. but then you go and uh, from practicing law, you co-host, I think it was the stream that yeah. you went to. So my question is, what will people say? <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. Because so, so what you're mentioning is in our is this is universal in 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 our communities. It's lokya bolenge, which means what will people say, and what will people say is the question that is never answered, but then drives us to our grave in every community, right? What will people say? Or you're getting divorced. What will people say? What will people say? You lost your home. What will people say that you that you have nothing? What will people say? Right? And so. In any community, I don't care where you come from, we are so enamored by what will people say. It's the question that drives us to make decisions that oftentimes leads to our unhappiness. But as long as we appear happy and successful, that's all that matters, right? And so, you know, you're mentioning uh, the stream, this Al Jazeera America is the stream. When I got married, and this is how it connects, I had nothing. I was in the Bay Area. My wife got a job in Washington, D.C. working at a clinic. I moved to DC with literally what I just told you that I had, literally. I'm using the word as it's meant to be used. I'm 30 now, I'm about to turn 31. I have no idea what I'm gonna do. I was, I'm a licensed attorney. People know me from like, you know, I started writing articles, journalism. Some people know me as a playwright. You know, I'm doing all these different things, but everyone thinks I'm crushing it. I got no money. And I moved to DC and I remember I get this phone call from Al Jazeera America. And they said, there's a rumor that you've moved to DC. Have you ever thought about television? You actually came on our show once as a guest. And you know, if you're not busy, can you come and audition for this new show we're doing called The Stream? We think you might be good. And I, and I said, well, I'm really busy making Ikea furniture for my wife right now. <laughs> and exactly like that, like that, Corey, they laughed. And I'm like, oh shit, they think I'm joking. So I'm like, ha, 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 ha. But that's literally what I was doing. Just to be useful, right? So I come in, I do this audition and I, I, th I thought I sucked, but for whatever reason, like you have something. And so a year, I made my wife that promise that I'll make it rain. I said, give me a year. And like to a week before that year was up, before our first wedding anniversary, I cashed my first check. Mm, that is awesome. That yeah, the, the year, like that takes a lot of faith to continue just on faith. That's all it is, man. Yeah. Be, like, what people say is once you, once you, have given up on hope or once you've exhausted hope, you just need to have faith. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Cause I, I've learned lessons along the way where I gave up on things or I didn't, I didn't exercise faith, mm. you know, like uh, even starting out just in, in, in New York where I knew what I needed to do just to get an audition, you know, mm. but I didn't get into that practice because I didn't necessarily X, I had faith, but I didn't exercise faith. That's right. Or maybe it was the faith was muffled out by a sense of entitlement, if I'm being completely honest. Like, don't they know how talented I am? Oh, <laughs> you know? so that's pride. Yeah, the faith was muffled pride. by pride. But, um, I okay, so I could go on about that. But when did you decide to co-host Democracy-ish? And I, I, was, I was curious, like, how do you see podcasting as a medium fitting in with all of the, because you have like, I think of it as like a life's work. Like you're everything that you do is is part of a bigger mission. So how do you see democracy ish as as fitting into that, or podcasting in general as part of that? No, no, I appreciate that. That's what I try to do. You know, I try to lead with lead with some values and a mission statement, if you will. Uh, many people for about five years or so, I said you should do a podcast. You should do a podcast, and I want the opposite of pride. I'm like, 
hey, aren't there enough podcasts? Like, why should I put out a podcast out there, right? And so my friends who are in the podcasting business, they're like, dude, podcasts are crushing it. Trust me. I'm like, there's like 900 new podcasts a week. Do, you re- do we really need one but with Wajahat Ali? I don't think so. And they're like, no, just trust me, do it. And so I'm so exhausted. I got three kids, like you mentioned, I'm doing all these different things. And I'm just like, I don't have the energy to self-produce a podcast and market. I know how hard it is to do it, man. Get the guest, produce it, edit it, promote it, right? It's just a lot of work. And so Danielle Moody, who co-hosts the Democracy-ish podcast, she invited me to be an interim host because they were finding and trying to find new hosts. But she didn't really tell me that I was auditioning. She said, (laughs) can you just come and like, just jump on, like help me out. And like an idiot, I say yes to everything. I said, sure. And, and, and like, we just got along really well. Like you and I get along, like our energies matched and like, you know, she has her personality. I have my personality, but like, we just meshed really well. And she asked me like four times, cause like, listen, can you do it again. Can you do it again? And then, and then like, but after the fourth time she goes, listen, let me just tell you straight up. Uh, I was trying to audition and find a new co-host. Everyone loves you. I love you. You're at the top of my list. I know you're really busy. It won't be that much a lift for you. You know, let's do this new reiteration of democracy ish. Can you join me? And I said, listen, since it's an easy lift and, you know, thank God, you know, we have a producing team on the background and you and I are, you know, she's a black queer woman, a daughter of Jamaican immigrants. I'm a practicing Muslim Pakistani man. Uh, People might think that's a weird match, but like we have shared values about trying to expand and stretch this country and democracy is just all about trying to, trying to save our democracy and our sanity when both are under assault right now. And, and to try to give voice to some of those voices that are often marginalized and, and trying to lift those voices and push back. So this week we talked about why it's important to invest in Latino communities to save America. Last week we talked about how this is a moment for American workers to flex. We had you on, right? And, and, and I, I remember you were telling me you were so nervous <laughs> coming on. And I was like, why? And you're like, I don't know, man. I just thought I would be like, you got to be, you have to be defensive, but you guys are like really nice. And you're like, like even during the conversation, you're like, you were shocked. And I'm like, yeah, man, it's fine. They're like, we're just having a conversation. And then people really like the conversation, right? People, the people are like, wow, that was really nice. You talked about politics and religion. And, and so it's been really nice to see how our audience has grown and it kind of goes along on, on this ride. And, and sometimes we're, we're, we're like you, we get depressed. Sometimes we get angry, other times we're hopeful, but this, you know, we're trying to make sense of this moment and build a community where people don't feel like they're going crazy, where people feel like they're not being gaslit, where people feel like there's an outlet, there's a voice, and people feel like there's some hope that you know, maybe there, we have the numbers, maybe we have the passion, maybe we can push forward and write a new story for America. So that's, that's why I joined. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. I have so many questions for you. I mean, for, for one, we didn't even talk about the fact that the Muslim kid goes to a Jesuit Catholic high school. Like yeah. how the hell that, how the hell? <laughs> yeah. How the hell that happened? So, you know, my parents, I went to public school, but then my grandfather, for some reason, got me into like a private school. And then once I got into the private school, close by to that private school in the Bay area, there was this, you know, I could have gone to a lot of good schools, even the public school. I was very lucky in Fremont was very good, but So it was either between going to Mission or like Bellarmine. And Bellarmine is a Jesuit Catholic high school, all boys Jesuit Catholic high school. And so it just seemed like it was a good school and and, and good reputation. We knew people went there and like good values. And it was like the motto was meant for others. And so I got in. And so my parents like, it's a good school. You got in. Let's give it a shot. And so 
here I am, the token Muslim at an all-boys Jesuit Catholic high school. I don't know anything about Catholicism. I don't know anything. I never read the Bible before. And like the first day of school, some teachers, you know, like some of the, our teachers were fathers. Uh, and so I remember Father Allender, algebra, freshman year. We all get in. Elderly man, he goes, everyone stand up. Everyone stands up. We're doing the Our Father. I'm like, what? And then so everyone's like, Our Father who art in heaven, have, uh, hallowed be the name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. And the whole time I'm like, you know when you don't know the lyrics of the song and you're just like, Our Father. So, but like the third week I got it. And so, and then for and then anyone who's gone to Catholic school, they know they kind of low-key want to make you into Catholic, but they can't say it. And so the, each semester there's like a religious studies class, but it's like Bible as literature, social justice, prayer and meditation. And so the person who crushed it every semester in religious studies was the token Muslim Mujahatali. And, and I always <laughs> joke that father, fa, you know, the father Allender and others, you know, they used to read out the names and like their, their heart, their Jesuit, you can hear their Jesuit heart cracking. High is great again, Mujahatali. Uh, and the reason, <laughs> you know, bring it all full circle to stories. Why did, why did I get the highest grades in addition to being a nerd? Because the stories were the same stories I learned growing up because the prophets are all the same. And I'm like, look at that. The story of Abraham, Yusuf, Isa, Jesus, Moses. I know this. Oh, the values, the morals. I know this. So the Muslim was really into the religious values and stories. And that's why I crushed it at an all boys Jesuit Catholic high school. It's so, it's so interesting because we do have a great deal in common there. You know, when I first read the New Testament, I grew up reading, obviously, Hebrew Bible, Torah and prophet, you know, prophets and, and histories, et cetera. But then the first time I read the New Testament, which, by the way, I there was a part of me that's kind of uh, superstitious. I thought as a Jew, you know, the direct descendant of Eastern Europeans and I, I, the, the second that I walked into a, a, a Protestant church or, or cracked open the New Testament, the God of Israel would strike me down. You know, you would be smoten. <laughs> exactly. But I, I started reading, well, I read the book of J or uh, the James letter first, but then I started in Matthew one and started reading straight through about five chapters in, I get to what I recognize as a Jew, having gone to an Orthodox synagogue growing up, uh, what I recognize as a Devar Torah, like the, the rabbi, the teacher, Jesus teaching his disciples, Devar Torah. What I didn't put two and two together until later was I was reading the Sermon on the Mount. Mm. I was so pulled in by the brilliance of this Devar Torah, not really, oh yeah, I guess this is a good, uh, you know, piece. And they, they made it into the Sermon on the Mount. But um, I, I have noticed too, though, that I was drawn to the, th at first it was, I looked at it as philosophical because I was looking at it more as literature mm. before I, you know, made the decision to become a Christian. Um, but then also theologically, I was drawn in by the theological premises I was drawn in by the theological convictions that that it brought up in me. And then subsequently, you know, not not too long after that, I realized that I was at odds with many people I was going to church with because it wasn't the theological for them. There were social political issues that were more prominent that at times, often, in fact, were at odds with the theological convictions yeah. espoused in, in Scripture. Yeah. So it's been a struggle for me because I, I feel like in a way. I'm still speaking Christian, but with a really thick Jewish accent, <laughs> you know, with a lot of phlegm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, 
the next ah. time I hear a Christian say hoods pa, I think I'm just going to punch him in the throat. Yeah, like, it's just like, going to be reflexive. You know, like, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. But for this one, he gave me an exception. <laughs> that's uh, right. uh, it's, 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 you know, what you, what you describe, I think is a phenomenon that cuts across all religious communities where many of our religious colleagues, if you will, brethren, they oftentimes use religion as a shield and a sword. And it's primarily for their political and cultural identity, divorced from the spirituality and the theology. And oftentimes I feel like they miss the mark. And so they, they, they use their religious identity to create kind of a almost insular reactionary community, you know, to protect themselves. And with an arrogance, which is so ugly to an outsider, sometimes to people inside it, right? Like we are the chosen ones. We're the best ones. We have the truth, capital T. And we're also now going to almost like you punt the prophet, whether it's Jesus, Moses, or prophet Muhammad to the passenger seat, right? It's like Jesus is riding shotgun uh, and he becomes a mascot. Yeah. And he becomes a very convenient mascot for your political ideologies. Same thing happens across the board within other the Hindu fascism, Buddhist fascism, Jewish fascism, is Islamic fascism, right? And it's it's very painful because for those who are attracted to the theology and, and the spirituality, and you kind of step back and you see the the wondrous beauty of it all, you know, right? I'm making an assumption, but I'm assume, I assume you were overtaken by the, the beauty of it. Like there's something here that really motivates me that goes beyond just the politics and the culture. There's something that touches me and gives, it feeds my soul. There's something here that gives me uh, an enrichment that I do not find in the quote unquote secular world. There's something beyond me that gets lost in translation with many of our, I think, religious colleagues who instead use religion as a sword to attack their perceived enemies or as a shield and as an armor for their yeah. politics. And then that's where unfortunately religion loses its beauty with so many young people who are like, I, I don't want this. I, and but the fun, the thing is, Corey, though, I don't know if we discussed this on our podcast. You know, everyone's talking about the nuns, the nuns, there's N O N E S. I'm not talking about right. N U N N S. Yeah. Uh, Ryan Burge, I think, is doing Yeah, they're it. still searching, though. That's the thing. Just because they reject, you know, religious hierarchy and institution doesn't mean they're not searching. That's the key thing that people are missing. They're still actively searching. Yeah. Yeah. We, we think of it. Uh, I think it was um, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis talked about the God-shaped void in some of their Inklings conversations. But I, I think there is, there is truth. We're truth seekers. Uh, I, I think we wouldn't be human if we weren't truth seekers, which, by the way, in my dissertation about the fact, the fact, the empirical fact that uh, Donald Trump is not human, it starts that that's one of the data points I'm going to start with uh, that uh, there are he's certain a, He's an orange make, calf. He's not, he doesn't have a soul and I could prove it empirically. And here's how, um, but uh, he is, he is, you know what, in, in, you know, I, I was talking to another writer who I won't name well-known writer. He's Jewish and takes his faith seriously. It's we, and he was like, you know, you and I should team up to talk about how, how Trump is like the modern day Pharaoh. And I was like, you know, you and I can make a really good in, intellectual case for this. And we could like write it for like the Atlantic. It's it, because like he, he is, he, if you are a student of religion, there are so many aspects of his behavior and his character, which is pharaonic. And we, we just don't see, it's like one of those things where I go going back to Moses. It's like these stories that have been with us throughout time. It's like, it's this, this rich irony. It's like Groundhog's Day. We just don't learn. It's yeah. like right in front of us and we don't learn again and again and again. 
Uh, so I'm imagining this one act play and it's with Pharaoh, you know, the, the you know, the bad haircut, uh, orange skinned Pharaoh uh, in the pilot's seat. And then uh, Jesus as the, uh, <laughs> the sidekick, you know, you stay in the passenger seat. And, you know, I just want to hear that conversation between the two of them. There was this um, series of books, Imaginary Conversations. I don't want to say who the author was because he it turned out after his death to he turned out to be a sexual predator. Ugh. Just it, it, that's a whole other conversation. That's part two of our conversation. But it was an amazing set of imaginary conversations between Buddha and Jesus between mm. he hasn't released. They, they never released this uh, imaginary conversation between um, uh, between Muhammad and Jesus. He has. Oh, my favorite was between Oscar Wilde and Jesus. Mm. I don't know if you've ever read. Um, you know, writings from guys like James Dobson and contemporary guys who are like, hey, listen, I'm Christian and I'm right. And look how good looking yeah. my kids are. And they get all straight A's. So look at their white teeth. So shiny. Yeah. Yeah. God loves us because we're rich. Yeah. But a guy like Oscar Wilde, at the end of his life, he wrote this great treatise called De Profundis. That spoke more profoundly, profoundly, but that spoke more powerfully to me than anything written by these guys who got it all figured out. You know, yeah, man, you know, no disrespect to your listeners and stuff, but I, I look like we got the Joel Osteens in our community also, right? These like mega preachers, these evangelist preachers who, when you talk to them and, you know, within my Muslim communities, they, they're businessmen, like they talk, they, they treat religion like a business. And so I, I admire, and in a strange way, it's a strange thing to say, I really admire their business acumen. I'm like, well done. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm like, you're selling religion to profit yourself and you're, and you're taking away the spirituality. And, and like, it's just, it's just so ugly to me. It's so ugly to me. And, you know, and then with the white smile and it's like the, the, the slick salesman. And I'm just like, oh, really? You know, and like, there's always been religious conmen. There always will be because it speaks, it's a language that speaks so profoundly to so many people. You know, there, there's something so insidious about that, though, because the folks who go to those churches and listen to those sermons start to replicate that. I can't think of it as any other way, but thinking of it as a, a chauvinism in a way, That's you right. know, and I look back at that early. Uh, I, I was going to the Sunday school class with my wife. It's called for young married class uh, when I first became a Christian. And a lot of those folks were you ask the question of, hey, how can, you know, what's going on in your marriage? How's marriage going? You know, what can you guys do better? Or, you know, let's talk about it. Let's go through life together. Let's have babies together and raise them together and do this thing. There were several people in that class that were like, nope, we got it all figured out. That's my right. kid's great looking. My kid's getting straight A's. My kid's That's are the right. captain of the soccer team. You know, we got it all figured out. And looking back, it's now 20 years later. I look back and how many divorces have occurred? Uh, how many kids, you know, and, and listen, my kids too, like I, I've, we've gone through different chapters and hit various bumps in the road. One guy, I hate to say it, but one guy literally blew his brains out. You know, mm. that was the family that had it all figured out. Um, you know, I don't say it as a sense of like, well, I was, I was right. And they were wrong. It, it's just a, a sense of like, man, like, let's, let's deal with it. Let's live life together. And sometimes it gets muddy and messy and ugly. And, but that's, that's real life, you know, and, yeah. and I don't know what we're trying to prove by pretending that we got it all figured out. Well, well, because they give you this very quick fix, you know, checklist to success. Yeah. Right? If you do this, you'll get this in these self-help books. Right. And then you follow, follow this formula and give me money and I'll give you this. It's like this bag of beans. Yeah. And, and, and they cloak it in religion. And, and then they say, look, 
I'm an example. Look at my white teeth. Look at my mansion. Look at my yacht. God loves me. And people are like, God must love him. He has a hot wife and perfect kids with great white teeth and a mansion. I'm going to follow him because if God didn't love him, he wouldn't be that successful. And this is how they they sell Jesus and they sell religion in such an ugly way. There's this great HBO sat- satirical show called Righteous Gemstones, which I think really... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I think, you know, but like, again, it goes across like for people are like, well, what about your religion? All religious communities, ladies and gentlemen, it's, it's not it's not unique. It just in the American context, I think the, the specifically this subset of like, I think evangelical Christianity really crushes it more so than most. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I could talk to you all day. Uh, I, I do have a couple questions left for you. One is whether you have any questions for me. I'm very curious, Corey, uh, in these communities that you deal with where they believe in God and they are politically active, how are they wrestling with, if at all, the violent rise of Christian nationalism? Do they feel compelled to call it out? Do they feel compelled to actually put a good face on it? Because what will people say? Or do they have their heads in the sand? All of the above. Uh, So the, the, the real answer is it depends on what sub-community I'm in. Uh, There are, to be candid, uh, some of these communities, whether it's Bible study from that church we were going to for a number of years, um, or uh, my kids were going to a private school before we lost everything, uh, Hmm. a Christian school. Um, Those communities tend to, uh, some of the prominent identifying features of those communities is kind of what we were describing before is it's not even a virtue. It's almost like everything that they believe in and everything that they espouse is sort of like an anti-virtue. It's like, we don't know about us, but they are bad and evil. And they're trying to take our guns and, you know, do a war on Christmas. And, Mm. you know, everything, a primary defining feature of that school, that little community um, from that private school, that Christian school, Mm. Uh, is the loudest voices in the room who are defining it for that community are culture war people. Um, Mm. So a lot of what they believe in, a lot of the speakers that they bring in on a monthly basis, a lot of what is um, spoken out loud in in, um, these offshoots and little uh, smaller, small groups uh, is driven by that. However, I go to a church now, uh, it's a Presbyterian church and the pastor early on, um, you know, he saw things even in the campaign, a 2015 part of the campaign, like we were talking before, where he didn't feel the need to spend a lot of time on it, but he wouldn't shy away from like, hey, here are some virtues, guys. You know, here, if he was preaching on love, you know, love is patient, love is kind, mm-hmm. it does not envy, it does not boast. You know, he would point out like, we, we have somebody who's a prominent figure in one of the political parties that may very well be be our president back in 2015, 2016. Mm-hmm that is on the wrong side of all of this, uh, you know? So he wouldn't be shy to talk about that. Um, I think though, there, there's somewhere in between too. So for example, I was at this um, get together uh, about two weeks ago. Uh, it was another church in town. I was, uh, a friend of mine goes to, and I was having lots of concerts. Let's say there were 15, 16 guys there. Mm. Um, it was a cigar whiskey night. I'm like, ah, cool, I'll go. <laughs> and uh, had conversations with most of the guys 
And I, listen, I'm out there like po- politics and religion is my thing. So let's just talk about it. I want to kind of feel out where they were at. Yeah. And most of the conversations we I, I had just spoken to Professor Paul Miller, who did a whole book on Christian nationalism. So it was kind of uh, prominent in my mind and was talking to some of the guys about it. And most of them were like, yeah, it's a problem. And especially the pastors, they, they just they're in an impossible position of yeah. like, to what degree do we call these guys out? that are really loud, obnoxious voices in their, in their uh, pews. Um, and to what degree do we just like, let's fight the battles that we can win. Um, and t- so to a degree, I felt like they were putting their heads in the sand. And then a, a little bit later, uh, and even one of the last guys to show up, I, I realized why one of the last guys to show up was a guy with a t-shirt that said, come and take them. It was, you know, khaki t-shirt, Jeez. come and take them. And he's like this six foot four dude, big dude, you know, um, and I'm like, oh, that's why they can't, you know, they can't be too loud or, or too, uh, too confident or, or speak too boldly about this thing of like, um, what, okay. So the counter of that 2002, sorry, I'm kind of all over the map, but I no, want to no, but it reminds fully. me so much of talking to imams. It's the same, same thing they know, but they also realize they know how their bread is buttered. They know their, um, congregation they know they have to throw down but if they throw down too hard they're going to trigger and lose some of the funders it's like it's almost like a political game it's fascinating yeah so i saw these signs very early on i think it was 2002 maybe early 2003 when it was Mm. uh there was a build-up to the iraq part of the war a buddy of mine he was the oldest son of the main teaching pastor of the church that we were going to and he was a missionary Mm. he came back from mission field and he gave a weekend sermon uh, and being a guy who, you know, he's out in the field, out in, in the world, uh, he was also very theologically ensconced. His job was to teach on Romans and tied into uh, Christ on the cross. Mm. And he didn't mention Iraq. He didn't mention the war. But the clear conclusion that he was arriving at, and scripturally very contextual, was that Jesus's path to victory was through the cross. Mm. Jesus' path to victory wasn't by, you know, recruiting the Roman army or by building the best sword and spear, Jesus' path to victory was through the cross. And he just kind of left it there. Dude was basically kicked out of church. Yeah. He was never invited to speak again. Uh, and that's the, the, the son of the main teaching pastor of the church. Wow. And it's because people in that church heard Iraq and heard something un-American or heard something unpatriotic, kind of like what you were saying about Dixie, uh, the, the chicks yeah. now, you know? Now the chicks. Yes. Well done. Yeah. Now the chicks. Yeah. So, um, Again, I think that it's a healthy exercise to question what our priorities actually are. Hmm. And listen, if your priorities are defined by uh, by this leader, this cult of personality, this Donald Trump, let's just be candid about it. I'd almost yeah. respect somebody more if they're like, yeah, I hate hate all this virtue stuff, this fruit of the spirit stuff, love, joy, peace. But that's for pansies. Yeah. I'm for Donald Trump. And I would respect them more if they were just honest about it. As it's opposed it's to becoming pretending. like that, too. We're yeah. not one of those pansy, weak Christians. We're like, you know, we arm yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But that's scary. This is not unique um, to Christians. It's it's the same type of conversation we're having within our communities also. And, and you feel like the religious leaders can and should do more. And then when you talk to them on the DL, they recognize it. But like almost like political actors through forces, mostly funding and societal pressure, they feel like if we if we push, we'll lose them. Yeah. And But then you're like going back full circle to our conversation. When is it time to throw down the stick? Yeah. And, and and when is it time to like, you know, be quiet? I I think maybe it's time to throw down the stick. 
Yeah. No, one of the guys, one of the pastors I was talking to at that night, a couple, a couple of weeks ago, he was literally shaking his head. He's like, I just don't know. I just, I don't know when to hold him and when to fold him. I, I just don't know. He, he was, he was at a loss. Hmm. So I, I sympathize. I don't know if I empathize, but I definitely sympathize with that uh, impossible position, you know, but at the end of the day, uh, you have to be willing to lose it all in order to gain it all, <laughs> you know? Right, That's right. So before we go, how can we find more info about you, democracy-ish, and all the great work that you're doing? So uh, if you guys aren't annoyed by me, I tweet <laughs> a lot at Wajahat uh, Ali. Uh, you can find the book, which right now Amazon has it at half off. As a son of immigrants, it's a damn good deal. Uh, 13 bucks. <laughs> go back to where you came from and other helpful recommendations on how to become American. And democracy-ish, there's a new episode that drops every Thursday morning. You can find it wherever you find your your beautiful podcasts. But, uh, you know, go to iTunes or anywhere. It's called Democracy-ish, Democracy-ish with uh, Daniel Moody and me. And if you want to have recommendations for guests, we've had Corey on before. We'd like to talk to a whole broad spectrum of Americans on how we can hopefully sustain and maintain this democracy and our sanity, which are currently under assault. Awesome. Awesome. And for what it's worth, I have both the the hardback, uh, what do you call it? The hard copy edition, as well as the Kindle edition of, of Go oh, Back. Oh, nice. Good man. From. Yeah. Yeah. So you should receive at least seven cents from both of those purchases. I will take, and, and I did the audio. I had no, I'm so old. I don't know. Like most of these, most folks do audio. I did the audio version of the book. So people really seem to enjoy the audio version. So if you want to do audio, I'm the one who actually did it. You know, what's funny. As I was reading the book, I was hearing your voice, but okay. So here's what an asshole and, and how prejudiced I am. Cause sometimes I know your voice, but sometimes I would, sometimes it was another person's voice. Uh, I think you're friends with Hassan Minaj. So yeah. sometimes it was his voice that I was hearing. So. You know what? As long as it makes you laugh, that's fine. <laughs> as long as that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but admittedly, that was kind of my own prejudice. I was kind of mishmashing, you know, some. Uh, He's like, why does he sound like Fried Zakaria? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, now, if it's, it's like when I hear you, I just hear Mel Brooks. <laughs> It's good to be the king. It's good, it's to, good be to be the king. king. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So uh, this was fun. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, as mentioned before, make sure to subscribe, rate us with lots of stars and leave a review. And just like my new friend, Rev Pat, that I told you about before, we might even read it on the air. And of course, you can support us at Patreon at patreon.com slash politics and religion. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. Thank you.